The following message was given by Raymond Goodland on Sunday, May 27th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. We are concluding our series this morning. We're wrapping that up. We've been calling this series Sent, the Mission of Jesus. And in this series, we've been looking at a number of different statements that Jesus himself made about why he was sent into the world. In John chapter 20, verse 21, after Jesus had been raised from the dead and before he returned home, before he returned to his Father in heaven, he said to his disciples, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And so throughout this series, we've been reminding ourselves that as Jesus' followers, as Christians, we don't simply go anywhere anymore but we see ourselves as people who have been sent by him into all the places where we find ourselves. We're sent into our families and our homes. We're sent into our schools. We're sent into our jobs. We're sent into our neighborhoods. Wherever he might send us throughout the world, we're sent to represent Jesus who has sent us. And so we've been following along with some things that Jesus has said himself. Not everything that he said about why he's come, but a few things. And we saw early on in, in Luke chapter 19, verse 10, that Jesus said he came to seek and to save the lost. We talked about what that meant. We saw in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, that Jesus came, second of all, and he said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. And we also looked right there at Matthew 20, 28, where Jesus said also, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. And we talked about what all of these things mean for us today. And so today we're going to conclude our series. And we could, we could go to John chapter 10, verse 10. We could talk about Jesus where he said, I have come that people would have life and have it abundantly. But we're not going to do that. We, we could go to John chapter 9, verse 39, where Jesus heals a man who was born blind. Jesus can heal anything, and he, he looks at this man born blind, and he, he looks at him, and he heals his eyes, and all of a sudden, this guy can see, and Jesus says to him, for judgment, I have come into the world. Now, you don't think of it that way, usually, but he says, for judgment, I have come into the world, so that those who are blind might see, and those who think they can see would become blind. Jesus said he came to do a particular thing that changes the perspective of everybody, Instead, we're going to wrap up our series today by looking at John chapter 18. Turn with me there, and I'm actually going to begin in verse 33. We're going to witness Jesus having a conversation with a man named Pontius Pilate. For those who might be unfamiliar, Pontius Pilate is a Roman governor. He oversees the territory, the part of the Roman Empire that includes Jerusalem, and that entire area where the Jews would have lived and where they would have conducted all of their worship and all that sort of thing. This was the busiest time of the year for somebody like Pontius Pilate because it was the time of the Passover and Jews from all over the area would come and converge on Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And so it was said that there were probably about 10 times as many Jews in Jerusalem at this time as there normally would be throughout the course of the year. So Pilate is busy getting as many soldiers as he can, occupying the area, keeping the peace, making sure no insurrections come about while the people are probably at the height of their zeal in terms of Zionist zeal, wanting to overthrow the Roman government. So, so the place is basically on lockdown. They're still allowing people to do what they're doing, celebrating their festivals, but 
to say that this is Pilate's busiest time of the year would be an understatement. Pilate didn't like this time of year. It kind of annoyed him that all of a sudden all this stuff was increased and, and there was the potential of all these things going bad. And so it didn't help that in, in verse 28 here, we're, we're told that this thing with Jesus is happening very early in the morning. If you're already annoyed and then something happens really early in the morning, that doesn't help. Or you, you agree with me? I, I like to sleep in the morning. I have this rule. I don't think you should get up before the sun does. It's just my, my way of, this is God's clue. I know some of you have to do that, and, and I, forgive me, but I just think there's something to this. The sun gets up first, and then the rest of us rise, right? Well, this morning, there's this woodpecker that decided it needed to wake me up before sunrise. You remember that cartoon, Woody Woodpecker? Apparently, that woodpecker's a real thing. Worst sound to, you could possibly hear at 5.45 in the morning. Anyway, let's hear the sound of God's voice as we read the scripture. Verse 33. Pilate entered his headquarters again. And he called Jesus to him and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Now, that's, that's basically, you know, sometimes we say something like that. Like, that's right, you said it. All right? That's basically what he's saying. It's not like, a, oh, you say I'm a king. No, Jesus is affirming what Pilate just said. That's right, you said it, I am a king. For this purpose I was born. Here it is. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth, or the New International Version says it this way, everyone who is on the side of truth, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Then Pilate looked at him. Pilate said to him, what is truth? And as far as we can tell, he doesn't wait for Jesus' answer. The text continues there in verse 38. After Pilate says, what is truth? He makes the terrible mistake of leaving Jesus' presence and going to talk to other people. What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. Now, he got that part right. What does it mean for us today that Jesus came to bear witness to the truth? And is there perhaps a particular truth that Jesus is trying to highlight for Pilate on the morning of his crucifixion that he's trying to highlight for us today as well? Let's go back through it and let's, let's get the answers to those questions. Verse 33, Pilate enters his headquarters and he calls Jesus to him and he has a one-on-one -on -one 
I don't know if it's a private audience, but he has a one-to-one -one conversation with Jesus Christ himself. What an opportunity. And as far as we can tell, Pilate squanders this opportunity. I think this is perhaps the greatest squandered opportunity in, in the history of the world. To be looking at Jesus himself and to be wondering what is truth? Does truth even exist? What is it if it does? To, and, and to walk away from him, what a squandered opportunity. There were these four guys, uh, aspiring musicians, reminded of squandered opportunities. They were aspiring musicians. And, uh, you know, they started this garage band. And like everybody who starts a garage band, they had dreams of one day making it to the big stage. They had some talent, so they started working out of the garage. They started practicing, and they got, they, they got pretty good. They booked some local gigs. People started to come. They developed a, a following, and they were doing pretty well, and they said, you know, why don't we give this thing a shot? So they took some of the money that they had been earning, purchased or, or secured the services of an agent, and that agent was successful in booking an audition for them with a, a pretty well-known studio, a studio that had actually signed one or two big names. This was their big shot. The problem was the, the audition was on New Year's Day. Now, imagine for a minute, four young, relatively immature men who are beginning to taste some success in the music industry locally and, and some of the fame and attention that comes along with that. What are they doing on New Year's Eve the night before their audition? Yes. They are partying way too much, had way too much to drink, and they actually showed up for their biggest opportunity on New Year's Day about an hour late with a hangover. It was not their best performance. The representative of the studio called the agent back some time after that and said, look, the, the, these guys aren't bad. They, they just, be honest, they weren't great. You know, and more than that, I just, these bands, these guitar bands, I think they're on their way out. Nobody's going to be interested in that. Missed opportunity. And if it was a missed opportunity for these musicians, it, that's nothing compared to the missed opportunity it was for the studio. It, it sounds like this is a made-up story, but it's not. It, this was New Year's Day, 1962. This was in London, England, and the studio's name was Decca Recording Studios. The four young men that walked in were George Harrison, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, and a drummer named Pete Best who would soon be replaced by a guy named Richard Starkey or Ringo Starr. You may have heard of the Beatles. How would you like to be the guy who turned down the Beatles and said, ah, I just don't think this is going to be a thing? <laughs> Missed opportunity. Missed opportunity that day for the Beatles. Missed opportunity for Decca Studios, no, no doubt. Nothing compared to the missed opportunity that, that is here before Pilate, and I dare say before us, to actually see Jesus for who he is and to have our hearts respond accordingly. Jesus continues to speak to Pilate, and Pilate draws him in in verse 33 and says, are you the king of the Jews? Now, when Pilate asks this question, he is well aware of the fact that there is a man named Herod who actually holds that title, king of the Jews. But he asked Jesus anyway, are you, you, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus, notice, does not answer his question directly, does he? 
Jesus looks at a very simple yes or no question. And of course, if Jesus is under the impression here that Pilate holds all of the cards and that Pilate holds all of the authority in these proceedings, he would have answered his question with a simple yes or no answer. But notice what Jesus says. He looks at Pilate and and Jesus has some questions of his own. It's as if Pilate is the one on trial. He says, wait, I... Did you come to this on your own? Or did somebody else say this to you? Look, kids, look, this is important. Watch. When you talk about Jesus and when you say things that are true about Jesus, is it coming from here? Is it coming from the inside? Are you coming to this from the inside? Jesus makes this very personal. You're asking me a question, but where is that coming from? Is this coming from here, or is it just stuff you've been hearing? Kids, when when you start to think about Jesus and say things even that are true about Jesus, this is good for adults too, where is that coming from? Is it firsthand or secondhand? Is it coming from the heart, or are you simply repeating what you've heard from other people? That matters to Jesus. And so he looks at Pilate and says, is this... Is this coming from here or from here? And Pilate looks at him and and says, am am I I a Jew? Verse 35, do you think I'm a Jew? I mean, do you think I would waste even a moment of my life with this little silly Jewish controversy? I mean, clearly this is only something that Jews would care about. Who Jesus is. What his claims are. Does he have some kind of authority? Is he some kind of a king? It doesn't matter to anyone else. It's, It's... It's strictly for this one particular ethnic group or this one particular person that that, that thinks of himself as belonging to a particular religion. Am I some kind of a Jew that you think I would waste my time on this? Your own nation, your own people, your own chief priests, they delivered you over to me. What have you done? See, Pilate, in his mind, this is something that is confined to a concern of someone who is a Jew. As far as he's concerned, Jesus is, is confined to that realm. And, and he says, man, your own nation brought you here. And Jesus looks at him, and, and you can tell by Jesus' answer. Once again, Pilate asks the question, what have you done? Does Jesus answer it directly? Look at your Bible. You can see it by now. There are enough lights on. Pilate asks him a question again, what have you done? Very simple, straightforward question. Requires a simple, straightforward answer. Jesus just begins to preach. What have you done? Thank you for asking. Verse 36, my kingdom isn't out of this world. Why, Pilate, why are you asking me if I think you're a Jew as if this only pertains to people who are Jews? Why are you speaking to me as though the claims I am making and the claims that other people don't like which have brought me into your presence this morning, why are you looking at me and speaking as though this is something which is only concerning a particular ethnic group? When you you talk about my own nation delivering me over, do you have any idea which kingdom I represent? Do you think it's confined to this one nation? My kingdom is not of this world. Listen closely, everybody. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting 
that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. And, and look, if, if what is happening today and if all of the events leading up to my capture and my being brought before you, if any of those things were a legitimate threat to my kingdom, my servants would have been fighting. But I want you to get something straight, Mr. Pilate. Nothing that happens in this, this room this morning is a threat to the establishment of my kingdom. None of the persecution I or my people have endured, none of the threats made against us, None of these other movements or religions popping up, none of this stuff is a threat to the establishment of my kingdom. My kingdom is not of this world. And we're not told that Jesus spells it out exactly for him in, in this setting. This is the highlight reel of this conversation. But we do know that in other places the Bible spells out for us the nature of the kingdom Jesus is talking about. Look, if you will, at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Ezekiel, Daniel, right before Hosea. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. Jesus is described here. The picture here is of a scene taking place in heaven. God the Father is, is referred to here as the Ancient of Days, and Jesus is like one who is like a son of man. And, and Daniel says here, I saw in the night visions, and behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. All peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. It's not just about Jews. The kingdom that I am establishing, the kingdom that I represent, the kingdom over which I preside and where I am king is one that will encompass all the nations and kingdoms of this world, including what was then the Roman Empire, which you understand is gone today. And guess whose kingdom is still here? This is not just about Jews. This is not just for white people. This is not just for black people. This is not just for Asian people. This is all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve this one, Jesus. All. And Jesus is standing here before Pilate telling him, this is, this is what you need to understand. Which is why every time Pilate gives Jesus a question, he doesn't answer it. Because Jesus is not there to answer the questions Pilate is asking. He's not there primarily to give him the answer he seeks. He's there to give him the truth that he needs. You ever wondered why God does not always plainly answer your questions? I am telling you this, Jesus is often in the habit of giving you the truth that you need more than the answer you seek. And he does that here with Pilate. And he begins to speak about this truth. He, he is answering Pilate in a way that brings Pilate face to face with the reality his soul must encounter before it's too late. 
I am a king. This is the particular truth that Jesus is driving home for Pilate and I dare say for us this morning. I am a king. And my kingdom, the extent of my authority, reaches to your life. I will come back to this in a little bit. Jesus is a king, and the, in, the influence, the extent of his authority reaches to our lives. Every area and aspect of our lives. Pilate is listening to this, and Jesus says, Pilate, this is true, and I have come into the world. In fact, I was born for this purpose, to bear witness to the truth. I mean, think about this. Jesus is the only one in history who has ever chosen to be born. Us understanding this is so important that this man chose to be born and to leave a perfect kingdom to come to a sin-infested world so that you and I might have access to the truth that we need. He chooses to be born, and he comes into the world and said, I have come for this reason, to bear witness to the truth. And he's speaking about a very particular truth. I'm a king, like no other, the king of all kings. In fact, look at Revelation real quick, chapter 1, verse 5. The apostle John, who wrote this, would write this book later, the book of Revelation, last book of the Bible. And in chapter 1 of Revelation, verse 5, he describes Jesus in this way. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and watch this, the ruler of kings on earth. Jesus said, Pilate, you're you're just a governor of one particular kingdom that is here today and will be gone tomorrow. I am a king, and a king that makes your Caesar look small. Folks, it is still that way today. Jesus is the great king of all the earth. All nations, peoples, and languages are created to serve him. It isn't the case. You often hear people say, well, you're only a Christian because you were born in the West. No, no, you don't understand. You don't understand. Is it true that you're a religious pluralist because you were born in the East? No, that's not the way this works. Wherever you have found yourself on earth, Matthew 28, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It doesn't matter where you're born. Jesus has authority there. Jesus is the king. And you owe your allegiance and obedience to Jesus. That is true. Whether, look, look at me, everyone. Whether we believe it or not. See, because this is the problem Pilate had. It's so common in our day. Pilate listens to this very particular truth Jesus is expounding upon. Pilate looks at Jesus who is stating this very matter-of-factly and very confidently. And and, and all Pilate can say in response in verse 38 is, what is truth? I'm so far from being able to accept your claim, Jesus, that you're a king and that your authority reaches to my life. I'm I'm not even at the point where I'm willing to accept that something like truth even exists. Now, what have you got to say to me? I'm a skeptic. 
Well, see, 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 look. Notice Jesus is not deterred by any of this. Please notice that this is not a new thing. People have long thought they can escape authority by claiming they don't believe in truth. This is not new. Imagine, imagine you have three people. Pilate is saying, I'm, what, what is truth? Does that even exist? Well, first of all, logically, I don't want to get too philosophical on you, but it happens, right? If you read 1 Corinthians 15, Paul waxes philosophical. He's talking about the resurrection, and, and there are people there, and he's trying to talk to them about the resurrection of Jesus, an actual historical event which took place and upon which their faith rests. And he said, now, if, if we are saying that Christ has been raised, if this historical event has taken place, how is it that some of you say there is no resurrection? And then he just goes on and on in circles, right? Well, listen, if, I, if Jesus said, if I'm telling you I'm a king, and I'm telling you that is the truth, and I am here to bear witness to the truth, how is it that some of you say there is no such thing as truth? I mean, how is it that some of us have been sucked into this thing that we see present in our culture today? Where, where uncertainty, confusion, and skepticism are celebrated as, as virtues. This is, this is the environment that we live in. As if there's some virtue inherent in uncertainty and confusion. Now, now listen, it, it, it's okay to be confused or uncertain about something. But don't confuse that for a virtue in and of itself. To, to a certain degree, what you're admitting is that you are still in darkness. You're unable to see your way through. Look at John chapter 12, verse 46. The lights are back on by now in the, in the room. And we're hoping that this will be true of our hearts as well. But in John chapter 12, verse 46, Jesus gives us another reason that he came into the world. And he says here, I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see that? I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. When he says darkness here, he, he's not saying you're, you're never out in the exposure of the sun. He, he's saying that inside there's darkness, there's confusion. You don't know how to navigate your way through life. You don't know how to sort between these different claims that conflict with each other. You don't know where truth begins and error ends. You don't know. You're in darkness, and Jesus says, I come into the world as light. And what light does is it brings clarity. Do you see that? Jesus comes to give us clarity. Clarity concerning the nature of God, who he is. Clarity concerning morality and how human beings ought to live. Jesus comes to give us clarity. He comes as light. And it is possible for you and for me to have this kind of clarity. To know that truth not only exists, but by the way, logically, you can't say truth doesn't exist. Because if you do, you're saying, I know something that's true. Truth doesn't exist. So you have, you have defeated yourself in an argument in less than three seconds. And if language and reality fail you that quickly, I would submit to you that it's your ideas and your beliefs that need to change and not truth itself. You say, all right, maybe truth exists, but we can't know it. Again, I know something. We can't know truth. 
So you know something that is true, and the thing that you know which is true is that we can't know what is true. Again, five seconds. So truth does exist, and it is to some degree knowable. We have to start there. Now, what can we know about God? What can we know about ultimate reality? Because that's what truth is. If we were to actually answer Pilate's question, truth is whatever corresponds to reality. And it is the expression of whatever corresponds to reality. But there must be reality. It will do us no good to say that truth is relative. I know how popular that is, but it does us no good. For instance, if, if, if Harry, let's say Harry is a Christian. We'll make you the Christian. Pete, you don't mind being a Buddhist for a second, do you? I, I, in fact, all right, you do. All right, well then you're a Hindu. All right, so Harry is a Christian. About the nature of God, he believes that there is only one God, but this God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He believes in the triune God. Pete is a Hindu because he didn't want to be a Buddhist. And so he believes in millions of gods. Just millions of gods. Alyssa, just for the morning, is an atheist. Alyssa doesn't believe there's any god. Would you agree that these represent three conflicting views about the same thing? They cannot all be true at the same time. But that is exactly what Asher believes. He is a relativist. He believes that truth is relative. Harry, if you believe that Christian thing, if that's true for you, then it's true for you. Pete, if you're, if you're a, you know, a converted Buddhist, now Hindu, you know, if you want to believe there are millions of gods and that's true for you, then that's true for you because truth is relative. And Alyssa, you want to believe there's no God? That's fine. You, you think they're all wrong? That, that's great. Truth is relative. Whatever's true for you is true for you. Now, each one of these is convinced in his or her own mind as is our friend Asher here. He believes that all this truth is relative. And so Asher believes he has taken the superior position. It is wrong for any of these individuals to say that their view of God is right and that their way of living in response to that is right. And so the only right way to view all of this is to say that they're all right, when really you probably believe they're all wrong. So Asher, in trying to avoid his exclusive views or, 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 or path, has actually adopted a view that is just as exclusive. He's making the exact same claim. He's saying, you're all wrong, and I'm right. The best way to approach a situation where there are multiple and conflicting views about the same thing is to just say the truth is relative. That's the right way to do it. So his view turns out to be just as exclusive as any of theirs. See, what we need to determine is whether or not there is actually some fixed point of reality that will help us to determine which one of these views is the right one, if any. Because you realize when you say truth is relative, that's not the end of the statement. You actually have to complete it. Truth is relative to what? You just can't be relative on your own. Right? If you have a relative, it implies there is some relation to someone else. You can't just be a relative or be relative on your own. Truth is relative to what? 
when we say truth is relative, we're saying truth is relative or stands in relation to a particular reality that we can identify. The problem with this philosophy that all truth is relative is it's saying truth is relative to you. It's relative to what you think, to what you believe. Whatever you think is true is all of a sudden true. Why? Because you believe it. And you are the ultimate and fixed point of reference that determines all truth. Therefore, truth is relative to you. Well, how convenient. I don't think anyone finds that convincing. They find it convenient. Could there be a more convenient idea? Truth is not relative to us, ladies and gentlemen. It is relative to Jesus. He is ultimate reality. He is the fixed point of reference. He is the reality which allows us to see which, if any, of these other views or ideas is correct. And he speaks this way all the time. He meets a woman that he never met before uh, oh, from Samaria in John chapter 4, right? He meets this woman and she starts to have these questions. Well, we, 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 we've heard that we, you, know, you Jews worship over there and we worship on this mountain. You know, what, what's the deal? And Jesus looks at her and just says, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, whatever's true for you is true for you. You want to worship there? Go ahead. You want to worship here? Go ahead. Is that what he said? No. He says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is of the Jews. He makes a very particular, specific claim to have a superior view of the truth as compared to this lady. And he said, well, that's arrogant. Well, what's the alternative? It's just as arrogant in, in your, in your, according to your definition. So if other people are going to call you arrogant... Let them judge you. Their judgment of you is, is not the biggest deal. Let them judge you. What we need to do, what Jesus tells us we need to do, is not so much, don't, don't worry so much about being on what everybody else thinks is the right side of history. You need to be on the right side of truth. Look at what Jesus says again. Look at, look at verse 28, or verse 38 rather, John 18. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Everyone who is on the side of truth listens to my voice. Let's close here with a few questions. Do you listen to Jesus when he speaks? Do you listen to him? Is his voice, listen to, listen to what I'm asking you, is Jesus' voice the final authority in your life? Do you understand that God's voice, Jesus' voice, is the ultimate voice behind everything we read in this scripture? Do you understand that? This is what Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. Do you understand that all scripture the ultimate voice behind Scripture is God's voice himself. Does that voice have final authority in your life? 
when you all of a sudden gain clarity concerning what Jesus says, what the Bible says and teaches about a particular matter, is that the beginning of a debate for you or does it settle the issue? If all it does is begin a conversation with equals, as if you and the Bible are equals, and you're still trying to figure out which one of your conflicting ideas is correct, well, I know the Bible says this, but here's what I think, and I, I actually believe I'm right. If that's you, Listen, I, listen, with all due respect to where you are in your journey, let me, let me help you understand something. If that's you, then you are not on the side of truth. You are not of the truth. You do not listen to Jesus' voice and submit yourself to it. Jesus says, all who are of the truth, listen to my voice. It doesn't mean you're not sincere. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with you having questions. It doesn't mean with, there's anything wrong with you being uncertain about things. You may have an extremely noble heart as you exist in that particular state, but Jesus would want you to know that you are not yet in that place where he would say you are of the truth. And he comes to you this morning just like he came to Pilate with the opportunity of your lifetime. He says, I am a king. It's true. It's true whether anyone on earth acknowledges it or not. It is true. I am a king. In fact, I am the king of all kings. <clears throat> My authority, Jesus says, extends to every aspect of your life. The only appropriate response for any human being is to submit themselves to and surrender to Jesus. What we have today, though, is a situation where all of us are prepared to accept a Jesus who puts himself forward to us as a friend. If Jesus is a friend or access, if he is the, the point of access, if he, if he is the source of more friendships and community, I'm ready to receive that Jesus. Because, you know, that's a felt need of mine. We're prepared to accept a Jesus even who is a rescuer. If I think I'm in trouble and Jesus is like some kind of a lifeguard, I feel like I'm drowning and he'll come and save me, that's fine. I don't mind a lifeguard like that. But, but if he's the kind of lifeguard that has authority and blows that whistle for, for adult swim five minutes before time, we don't want anything to do with a Jesus that has authority. And, and, and no one likes that lifeguard, by the way. I don't know if that's you. But nobody likes that lifeguard. Kids don't like that lifeguard, and I think parents really don't like that lifeguard. Like, I got five more minutes to read my book. You don't mean adult swim. If Jesus presents himself to us as a friend, as a rescuer, as a, as a counselor or a guide, someone who just gives us advice about how we should live, but we're free to take his advice or leave it, man, we love that Jesus. But Jesus looks at Pilate and looks at us this morning and says, I want you to know one thing as we close the series. I'm a king. And I have come into the world to bear witness to that truth. And now, the response is yours. Will you receive Jesus this morning as your rightful and final authority?
in all things? Will you surrender to Him? The Son of God. Will you recognize Him for who He truly is? Will you walk in the light? And will you give up if, if indeed your, if your uncertainty is really, and you know this better than anybody, if your uncertainty is really just an attempt to escape external authority, are you finally at a place where you're willing to put that aside? Lord, help us this morning. Help us to relate rightly to you. You left this moment with Pilate, and that very day you went to a cross for people just like him, for people just like us. And you died to pay the penalty for Pilate's sin and for ours. And God raised you from the dead. And you proved everything that you ever claimed. For whatever reason, and maybe for multiple reasons, Lord, some of us today are still stuck. We do not yet accept the testimony of the Scripture as evidence that you are indeed exactly who you claim to be, the great King of all the earth and the rightful authority for every single one of us. Would you help us to gain the clarity and more even than the clarity, the courage that we need today to acknowledge that ultimate reality in light of present hostility and ridicule. And would you grant us, Lord, the power of your Spirit to humble ourselves before you, the great King, and to receive your grace, your forgiveness, and a share in eternal life and in your eternal kingdom. We ask all of that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.